Romans 16, uh, 17 through 27. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles. Contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, for your obedience is known to all. So I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. <clears throat> the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Arrestus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is the very word of God. Well, as uh, we come now to this last part of the letter to the Romans, we find the Apostle Paul leaving us with one final appeal, verses 17 and 18. One final encouragement, verses 19 to 23, and then one final doxology in verses 25 to 27. So I want to speak to you this morning um, in that structure, in that particular outline. Paul gives one final appeal, one final encouragement, one final, not the only doxology, but one final doxology, and in these last things that he leaves us with in the letter, um, I think he summarizes for us here a perspective on uh, the gospel that he's been preaching, he's been proclaiming, he's been writing about in the last 16 chapters. You remember that the, the uh, thesis of Romans is Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. So that has been Paul's thesis. That's what he's been unpacking all along. And one of the things we have to remember when he talks about the gospel is he's talking about the good news of the kingdom of God. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he regularly talked about the reality of the kingdom of God, it had come. It was here. Everything that the Old Testament had promised, everything that was prophesied in the Old Testament was coming true in the person and work of Jesus. The kingdom of God was breaking in on the present world. That's why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Everything God said he would do, he has done in the person and work of Jesus. And so I can't wait to talk about it. I can't wait to proclaim it. I can't wait to ponder with us the reality of what it's like now to live in the reality 
of the gospel of the kingdom. So this morning, I want to leave you with these three considerations. First, the work of the kingdom requires vigilance. Vigilance. Second, the work of the kingdom will succeed. And then lastly, the work of the kingdom is a great privilege. The work of the kingdom requires vigilance. Let's talk about that first. But here's the encouragement. The work of the kingdom is going to succeed. And then lastly, it is an enormous privilege to now be God's people and to do the work of kingdom, of king, the kingdom work, the gospel of the kingdom. All right, so let's begin verses 17 and 18. We find here Paul makes this one final appeal. You can almost hear him as he's bringing the letter to the close. Like, I just, one more time, want to remind you of something really important before you go get after it, Romans, before you live your life in light of this gospel of the kingdom that Paul has been laboring to proclaim to them in his letter. The word appeal in verse 17 indicates that he has one last urgent plea that he wants to bring to the attention of the believers. It's almost surprising for him to say this after that long list of greetings. But, you know, you, you do this when you're, when you're um, walking out the door. You say to your children or to your loved one, hey, don't forget to, you know, last thing. Just hope you haven't forgot this. So here's the last thing Paul wants to say. The last thing he wants you to remember as you go now. Live your life in the light of the gospel of the kingdom. And here it is. Here's what he says. Watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. In other words, kingdom work requires vigilance. Now, this final appeal, again, seems a bit abrupt in the flow of the letter. Coming here in between Paul's greetings and the previous verses and the salutations that we find in verses 21 to 23. But remember how he ended the list of greetings in verse 16. He ended with the encouragement for the believers in Rome to greet one another with a holy kiss. He encouraged them to see in the customary greeting of the day something more profound and more sacred than what one might ordinarily see. We discussed Last week, the importance of a gospel-centered church cultivating a gospel culture, a community of welcome, a community of grace, a, a place where sinners can find hope and experience the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. It's a, it's a community of peace, a community of hope, a community of love. The gospel of the kingdom creates a community like that. But be vigilant. We see again Paul's realism. The pursuit of this kind of a gospel culture will not succeed without some challenges along the way. There is opposition to the gospel message and its announcement of peace. And there will be plenty of ways in which the peace of the gospel will be challenged. Plenty of disturbances to the enjoyment of the peace that is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. So at the very least, Christian, be aware of that. 
don't be surprised when it happens. Don't give up on Christian community and on the Christian gospel when it seems like it's not working out. Be vigilant. Be vigilant. Back in Romans 5, Paul declared that having been justified by faith, peace with God is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. We stand in grace, Paul said. We rejoice in hope. But then do you remember what he said right after that? There are still sufferings that we're called to face. Even though the Christian possesses the surprising strength to rejoice even in our sufferings. We sang about that this morning. And if you're not suffering right now, you sang it and didn't even think about it. If you're suffering right now, you maybe paused before you said, I can sing in the midst of suffering. Peace really is ours through our Lord Jesus Christ. But we Christians need to be vigilant. You need to prepare yourself, Christian. Peace is secured for us in Christ, and you have every right to expect the experience of it, but not without there being disturbances along the way. What kind of disturbances might we expect? Well, Paul has already put on our radar back in chapter 5, the reality, in chapter 6, the reality of our suffering in the Christian life. He even explains in chapter 8, did we remember this, that these sufferings are something of a prerequisite for us to be able to enjoy the coming glory of resurrection. Oh, how you better get that in your head, Christian. We will be glorified with him, provided we suffer with him. But here, Paul warns of the disturbances caused directly by people who, quote, cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Who does Paul have in mind? Now, the word that he uses, or the words that he uses here are too broad, too generic for us to know for sure whom he may have had in mind. And perhaps he had no one in particular in mind. He simply knew from pastoral experience that wherever a gospel culture of peace is underway and is being cultivated, you can mark it, you can write it down, threats are coming. Threats to this peace are not far away. And what he does say is that those who cause divisions and obstacles do not serve our Lord Christ but their own appetites. So we're supposed to watch out for people who are interested, who are motivated in serving themselves, who have their minds set on themselves and not on Christ. Now, this description might be a bit easier for us to detect. We should watch out for those who would lead us astray from a gospel that magnifies the person and work of Jesus, twisting and turning Christian orthodoxy into something that magnifies themselves. Watch out for those kinds of people. And many assume that Paul is warning here about those who teach overt heresy, those whose doctrine goes against orthodox Christian belief. But that's not quite what he says. Take a close look. He does not warn here of those who preach a different doctrine 
than Christian orthodoxy. Though certainly, Paul warns in Galatians about those who would preach another gospel, which is no gospel at all. But here, he warns of those, look what he says, who cause divisions and create obstacles that do not correspond with the right divisions and obstacles that necessitate Christian orthodoxy. To say, I believe something, means you are necessarily drawing a line, creating an obstacle, if you will, or a division. And Christians have to come to know where those lines are. These are lines that are not just lines that differentiate between right and wrong belief. Listen, these are also lines that differentiate between right and wrong behavior. The people we are here called to watch out for are not just those who might go around preaching wrong doctrines, but also people whose very lives are out of line. And when we see them, when we detect them, Paul says in verse 17, avoid them. Avoid them. (laughs) Now, easier said than done, of course. After all, look what he says. Paul describes these people as those who, by smooth talk and flattery, are able to deceive the hearts of the naive. How do you avoid those who are attempting to deceive you? You first have to be able to detect the deception, right? I mean, Paul's warning here, his admonition to us, his appeal to us, is something like saying, Know your blind spots. If you know them, they're not blind spots anymore. Unfortunately, we often find out about our blind spots only the hard way. And maybe that is the point. Any single one of us, listen to me, Christian, any single one of us can be deceived. And sometimes we only find out that this has happened when we've fallen for the lie. And rather than defending ourselves when this happens, we need to learn from the lesson and make adjustments to make it less likely that we'll, all, that we'll fall for the same trap. So, when it is revealed that a well-known Christian apologist was in fact engaging in habitual sexual misconduct and abuse, the proper response is to admit that many of us were deceived. We were wrong to not believe his accusers. And then we should reflect on what now we see as the warning warning signs that we ignored so that we don't make the same mistake again. And when it is revealed that the leaders of our own denomination mishandled allegations of sexual abuse, intimidated victims, and resisted attempts at reform over the course of two decades, the proper response is to lament and repent. We should lament that such atrocities were committed and committed by members of our own denomination. 
And we should repent by action, making adjustments so that such a thing is not likely to happen again. I, for one, am grateful that the Southern Baptist Convention appears to be doing both, that the leaders of our denomination appear to be doing both. And I want you to know that the elders of Crosstown are asking that we take the opportunity to reevaluate our own policies and procedures so that we're not duped. Brothers and sisters, the work of the kingdom of God for which we are called to give ourselves does not come without its dangers, and we can be deceived. We must learn how to identify these dangers, and we must avoid them. And the reason why we've got to be vigilant the reason why this all matters is because if we understand the good news of the kingdom of God, then we should know what is at stake here. As Christians, we understand what it is that we're called to do. We should know the day in which we live. It's a spectacular moment in history that we find ourselves in. You and I are called to live in the reality of the kingdom of God. I wish I had a church to preach to this morning. You guys are asleep. We get to live in the reality of the kingdom of God. Oh, how I wish this would get, grip our hearts. We live in God's world. He reigns over it. And he is at work redeeming and restoring his created world that you live in. He has called you and me to that very same work, the work of the kingdom, a work that cannot be stopped, a work that will most certainly succeed. So there's dangers to avoid, but the kingdom work will succeed. So what else could you possibly give your life to? I... I this is my last chance at Romans, and I'm trying to stir you up today to realize who you are as a believer in Jesus. You are a worker for the kingdom of God. This is the best privilege of life you could possibly be asked to get, be given. This is enormous. This is who you are. So take a close look at verse 19. Look what Paul says to the Roman Christians. They're no different from you in this respect, right? We're living in the the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're living in the year of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our entire Western calendar reflects what you have forgotten, that you live in the day in which God has taken over. Now, watch, verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. Paul is encouraging these Christians. This is his last encouragement. They are doing quite well. And I would stand before you as one of the pastors of Crosstown, look every single one of you, members of Crosstown in the eye and say, you're doing a good job. You're doing a good job. As he said in chapter 1, their faith is proclaimed in all of the world. He's writing to what he believes, what he considers to be faithful Christians. And I'm preaching this morning to faithful Christians. Now, do you see what it means, though, to be a faithful Christian? 
It is not just to believe the right things, but to do the right things. Faith and obedience, belief and behavior are inseparable. Faith by itself, James says, raising some eyebrows, if it does not have works, is? It's dead. That's it. Or remember what Paul himself said earlier in Romans. Again, we raised our eyebrows when we read it. You've forgotten. This was a long time ago. This was chapter 2. Here's what he says. Romans 2.13, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And we raised our eyebrows and said, wait, how does that faith and works thing come to light? Like, you're going to have to figure this out, Christian. It simply will not do to say that one can be a Christian by believing in Jesus and then disregard obeying the Lord Jesus. It's not going to work. But Christians get all tied up in knots when we talk like that. Right? So, somebody in here is like, uh-oh, is he going to get this thing right? Some, somebody is like, but you got to frame this whole thing in light of the kingdom of God. And if you do that, it all starts to fall together. To say that we believe in Christ, what do we say? We, we mean by that that we believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Savior of the world. It means we believe that Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. The life that the world desperately needs. Come on now. You, you, you live in the world, right? You realize that this world desperately needs life, hope, peace. You have it, Christian. So... To then be a possessor of the good news of the kingdom of God and then refuse to follow his way ourselves is to betray the fact you really don't believe him in the first place. Therefore, obedience to Christ has absolutely nothing to do with trying to earn his favor. But it has everything to do with doing the work of his kingdom. And if you consider yourself a Christian, this is your primary task. You get up every day with the great enormous privilege to be about the kingdom of God, to so know Jesus and to hear Jesus that you know how to obey Jesus and advance his kingdom purposes in his world. That's your task. That is your job. Simple, right? You know how to do that tomorrow morning? Of course not. <laughs> Remember the warning of verses 17 and 18. Verse 19 connects with that warning. Profound, right? But look, notice the connecting word for in verse 19. It is the faithful who are most susceptible to the deception. You're going around being obedient to Jesus, walking in his ways, serving him, worshiping him, glorifying him. You've got a target on you. You've got a target on you. It's when you're living as a faithful Christian that you must most be on your guard. Those who live intentionally are the ones who are most aware of the forces at work to get them off track. 
So, while Paul is encouraged by the faithfulness of the Roman Christians, he says to them, look what he says, I want you, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Now, here Paul reminds us of our Lord's own exhortation to his followers. You remember Jesus said this in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, that sounds fun. (laughs) And here's what he says. So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How many of you ever heard those words before? Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. That comes from Jesus of Nazareth. Paul is probably reflecting on Jesus' words because he's saying, you got a task to do tomorrow morning. you got a job to do for the kingdom of God. Now, as you go do it, you need to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In other words, Jesus and Paul are both encouraging us toward a biblical wisdom that, how do you get wisdom? It only comes with time, and it only comes with a lot of patient endurance. I did this last week. I like doing this from time to time. I'll I'll often ask somebody on their birthday, you old people growing up, getting old around here, I'll say, hey, if you could go back and be, what, 15 again, 16, like I try to find an age that isn't like absolutely demoralizing. I say, would you do it? And then before they answer, I ask the question. Now remember, if you go back, if you go back, you don't get to go back with all of the wisdom that you've gained over the years. You've got to go back in your complete ignorance. Every single person I've ever asked that question to says, forget it. I'm not going back. I'm not going back. Says, biblical, somebody here is going to, you're going to wait until I ask you that question just to prove me wrong. You're going to say, I got you. Okay, but here's the thing. Wise as serpents, innocent as doves, this only comes through a lot of time. Patient endurance. This is a biblical wisdom. Many who consider themselves biblically wise are not so innocent. I know this. I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but this is a fresh out of seminary, graduate. That's who they are. I've been there. (laughs) You got it all figured out. You've got it all figured out. And you end up shooting at genuine brothers and sisters in Christ, killing our own. It's devastating. I've shot a few. I should know. They end up shooting at genuine brothers and sisters in Christ whom they've wrongly labeled as heretics. But don't you also see that many who claim to be innocent and pure are lacking in biblical discernment and cede far too much territory in Christian orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. I'm asking you, which of the two do you tend, which of the ones do you swing toward? Which one do you tend to get out of balance? And how much does it matter? Look, if you think of Christianity, if you think of this whole thing that we call the Christian faith as just another one of the world's many private religions, 
some way of personal coping in this difficult journey through life so that you can get to a glorious disembodied afterlife, then to be frank, this won't matter a whole lot. And you'd probably be better off erring on the side of being a wise as a serpent so you don't get fooled by false doctrinal assertions. If that's what you think Christianity is, and by the way, that's, that's what the whole world thinks Christianity is. It's just a private religion. Keep it to yourself. It'll help you kind of get through life and then go have your disembodied whatever. Go for it. The world doesn't care. And if that's the side you err toward, then you probably just might as well err toward being wise as a serpent so you're not led off into heresy. And if you think that Christianity is just another way of being a good person, a good citizen, a good neighbor, so that you don't get accused of being hateful or worse, a bigot, then again, the difficult pursuit of both wisdom and innocence will not be worth the trouble, and you're probably better off erring on the side of being innocent so that you aren't perceived as unaccepting or unaffirming of others. Okay, I think I got all of you with that. Again, it would be good to know which is the way that you're most tempted to get out of balance. Now, maybe you can assess your tendency by considering your own response to the reversal of Roe versus Wade that came down this week. Do you tend to feel like with this news, the goal has been reached, or do you tend to think the job has just begun? Are you more interested in seeing Christian morality upheld or in showing genuine compassion and understanding toward those who are upset by this decision? On the question of abortion, the Christian view has to be that it is wrong to kill the life of an unborn child. It has to be. But that point can never be isolated from the call to care for the life of a woman who feels such desperation that she would even consider having an abortion in the first place. You see, in the kingdom of God, abortion would be unthinkable. Not just because the inhabitant of the womb is a human being, a person, a child, but also because the mother would have no fear of carrying a child to term. So in other words, we got a lot of work to do. The work has just begun, and it has to be done. We surely can learn from history that some people can be all against slavery, but then do nothing to see to it that everyone has a fair shot at human flourishing. So, let us who have been all against abortion not now rest until we see that all human lives, both unborn life as well as their anxious mothers and fathers, have everything they need to flourish in God's world. You got a job to do. You got a job to do. Now, sounds impossible, doesn't it? <laughs> sounds impossible. Like, which political side is that, right? We uphold completely 
the sanctity of every life, including unborn human life. Yes and amen. So we say Roe versus Wade was rightly overturned. But then, on the other hand, we're following the good news of the kingdom. We say the job isn't done if there's anyone, any mother pregnant with a child who is afraid that she can't feed that child or take care of that child. Then we got work to do. We got work to do. This is the kingdom of God. Sounds impossible because our nation only gives us two options. We're so polarized that most people do not see how there can be any hope outside of one side obliterating the other. So many Christians seem to share in the despair, asserting that our task is either to hang on until God calls us home or to assume that this must mean Jesus is finally coming back. I mean, everything's so tense. Like, I'm hearing this all the time, right? Like, well, nothing you can do. Just hang on till you go to heaven. Or, well, oh, oh, the end time is on us. Here it comes. Like, this is what people do. Christian, you got a better option here. Jesus will surely return, as he said. And we are to look forward to that day. But the way that we are called to look forward to it is to live fully in light of the meaning of his first coming. And you haven't even got a hold of that yet. So we better get a hold of what it means that the king came. It's because Jesus died and rose again that we know the time in which we live. We live in the inaugurated future. The promised fulfillment has already broken in on this present darkness. The kingdom of God has come. And what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. Paul says in verse 20, it means Oh, I love this verse. What a great verse for Paul to end Romans. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. (laughs) Make no mistake. The reason the wisdom of verse 19 is so desperately needed is because the church of Jesus Christ is caught in the crossfire of spiritual warfare. What are we to do? Our task is not simply to get our doctrine correct so that we can take pride in our orthodox theology. You should do that. But that's not the end of your task. Rather, we are to recognize that, as one commentator puts it, there is a battle raging for the redemption and renewal of the world and of individual people, and the church is up against the powers of darkness. By the way, if you're a Christian, you don't get the luxury of opting out of that conflict. If you don't sense it, there's a good chance you've already been duped by the deception described in verses 17 and 18. There's a good chance that you've been taken hostage by those who do not serve our Lord Christ. And now we see who is really behind all that deception in the first place. Maybe the reason Paul was generic about who these people are we're supposed to watch out for is because he knows who's really the one we're resisting. Human beings are not our enemies, no matter what they believe or no matter how they behave. The enemy, Paul says here in Greek, is actually the Satan. The one who is doing everything he can to resist the tide of the end-breaking kingdom of God. 
But make no mistake, his resistance will be in vain. The God of peace is destined to win as he promised. The prophet Isaiah wrote, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. He will establish it, Isaiah says. He will uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Yes, indeed, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that this kingdom, the kingdom of God, is where justice is finally to be found, there's a work to be done. Yes, God will crush the devil. Make no mistake, the God of peace will crush Satan. We should never confuse the work of the kingdom that we're doing as if we're doing this without God or that we're doing this for God in his place. This is God's work. He is the one who will see to it the devil is crushed. By the way, do you see here in Romans 16, 20, that the reason Paul can speak so certainly about this is because he sees that what God promised all the way back, are you with me? I, I wish somebody was reading their Bible this morning. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, yeah. verse 15, God has done what he promised he would do in the beginning. The old serpent will certainly bruise the heel of the offspring of the woman. But what did God promise? It was the offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Victory is promised. God said he will do it, and he has done it. Paul believes this because he understands what it is that Jesus, the promised offspring of the woman, has now accomplished. But notice how he says this. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God will do the crushing, but he will do it through the agency of his people. Let's see, didn't he do it through the agency of Jesus? Romans 8, 3, you've forgotten that one already as well. In the flesh of the Messiah, God condemned sin in the flesh. And sin in Romans 7 and 8 is a personification of the dark, mysterious, evil power that we call the Satan. So, yes, of course, absolutely, Jesus has achieved the victory. But don't you understand, Christian, because of our union to Christ, because we are his people, what is true of the Messiah is what is also true of us. That means everywhere we go, proclaiming Jesus, doing the works of the kingdom in his name, God continues to stamp on the head of the mysterious dark powers of evil with your feet, bringing the sweet fruit of his glorious kingdom into reality in the world today. And man, it's fun to squash the devil. Pastor Jod said it's like stepping on that 
cockroach, you hear it under your feet. Yeah, that's what you're called to do. All of a sudden, the list of names at the beginning of this chapter, joined by the hello from Paul's co-workers in verses 21 to 23, takes on a new meaning. When you see your life as a Christian for what it's really all about. We Christians are not just brothers and sisters. We are co-workers for the kingdom of God. And yes, we are fellow soldiers of Jesus. But never forget, Christian, that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. We will not work for the kingdom of God with deception and lies and political power gained at no cost. God doesn't need any of that. None of it. The kingdom of God comes by the subversive and surprising power of laying down our lives, even for our enemies, because we know that we will take them up again in resurrection. So what then is left to be said? We cannot be ashamed of the gospel of the kingdom of God because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So there's really only one thing left. All that remains at the end of it all is the glory of God, a God for us to praise. He has called us into his kingdom. Don't you see what that means? It means he's called us into his service. He's given us a vocation, a calling, a purpose, a meaning for life. We are to be consumed by the work of the kingdom. And it's an enormous privilege to carry it into your workplace tomorrow. To carry it into your homes this afternoon. When we understand the gospel is about the transforming power that the world needs, the power even to lay down our lives knowing that in Christ our resurrection is certain. This is the power the world needs. The world is grasping for a power it knows won't last. You win only for a moment and somebody's going to beat you. But as Christians united to a crucified and risen Savior, we don't even have to love our lives even to death. We can lay them down. And when you begin to understand this gospel is the, go- is the transforming power the world needs, you can't help but be transformed by it. Or as Paul says, strengthened here. Strengthened by it. Verse 25, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel. If you feel weak and powerless, you need to be strengthened by the good news of the kingdom of God. And strengthened by its central message which is the preaching of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. The proclamation that Jesus of Nazareth is the hope of the world. What has been revealed by the gospel is the righteousness of God. That is, how God himself has been justified. We've entitled this whole series, Real Hope for the Righteousness of God. In other words, in the gospel of Jesus, we see how God has been justified, how God has carried out his promise, how God has done what he said he would do in Genesis 3.15. 
we believe that the gospel of Jesus, the revelation of God's kingdom, breaking forth now into the world, is the hope of the world. And how would that then affect us? Well, Paul says here in verse 26, it has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about, here it is one more time, the obedience of faith. An obedience that Christians know is not some slavish list of rules that God demands you follow or else, but simply the understanding that Jesus is the world's rightful Lord and in obedience to Jesus, the world is saved from the corruption and death it has been enslaved to since the fall of Adam. Therefore then, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is actually the way the Greek text reads as the book of letter to the Romans comes to an end. To the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory. To whom? To, to the only wise God? Or to Jesus Christ? Who, who, Clyde, you're on it, bro. You are nailing it. I wish I had a church full of Clydes this morning. That's it. That is it. Paul would definitely say, yes, amen, giving God glory through the corporate worship of Jesus as the world's true Lord is what renews us to be his image bearers. That's why you come to church. You come to worship with God's people. Worship whom? The only wise God through Jesus Christ. And as we worship the world's rightful king, we are renewed into his image so that we can bring the light of hope and salvation to a world that would otherwise tear itself apart. That's your calling. That's the appeal. That's your task. That's the encouragement. All praise to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Oh, that you would open our eyes, O oh Lord, to the great glories of God in Jesus. We have good news for a broken world. We really do. We have good news to everyone, to the Jew and also to the Gentile, to the slave and to the free, to all people. We have good news. Right now, in this broken, dark world, the hope has broken in. The light has finally begun to shine. No matter where you find yourself, no matter where one finds themselves on any number of issues or questions or policies or politics or parties, the gospel of Jesus cuts across it all and calls everyone to lay down their arms and submit to him. Now, if this is going to take root, if, God, you really do intend to crush Satan under our feet this week, then it has to begin with us being renewed in the image of God through Jesus Christ. We have to lay down our weapons. We have to, as we sang earlier, cast out our idols. 
How can we bring good news to a broken world if we are worshiping the same idols they are? Oh God, forgive us our sins. Cleanse us. Renew us in the image of Jesus. And send us out with this power to proclaim the news that no, policy, no, no government of man, no political party, no public policy issue could ever proclaim Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We ask now in Jesus' name. Amen.